Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Good to be back together with you as we turn to God's Word. This morning we're turning back to our series in the book of Ephesians, where we find ourselves halfway through chapter 4. Just as a quick refresher, we've seen Paul spend the first three chapters of Ephesians reviewing what God has done for us in Jesus Christ in forgiving our sin and reconciling us to God and to each other. And now in chapter 4, Paul has turned to discuss how do we walk worthy of this calling that we have in Jesus Christ. And he began in chapter 4 by calling us to unity as God's people. And Paul, in arguing for this, began with theological fact and argued from theological truth to practical action. He gave us the theological truth that we are one in faith, in one Lord, united by one Spirit, under one God. And given that truth, we are therefore to live and walk in unity with one another, in humility and patience, serving one another with the gifts God has given us, building each other up in love so that the whole church attains to maturity in Christ. Well, now we arrive at verse 17 this morning. And Paul is going to turn to the second way that we walk worthy of our calling in Christ. And this second way is that we are to walk in righteousness and holiness. And just as Paul did with unity, he's going to argue from theological fact or theological truth to practical action. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 17 to 24, where Paul lays out the theological foundation for why we ought to live in holiness. And then he'll spell out many of the details that we'll look at in the weeks to come. But join me as we read verses 17 to 24 of Ephesians chapter 4. This is God's word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us, and we ask that your spirit would again speak to us this morning through your word to make us more like Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I have to tell you as we begin this morning about a a small problem in my home right now. It has to do with clothes. 
See, the youngest member of my family has an obsession with changing outfits all day long. Maybe yogurt got on this shirt, or this skirt got wet, or this dress is too hot, or maybe just I have a shirt that matches my sister's better. And there's many excuses to change outfits three, four, five times a day. And of course, naturally, all of the outfits that get changed out of go right into the dirty clothes hamper. And so the overall laundry load for my wife has seen an unfortunate increase. But as I was thinking about this and maybe some slight uh, annoyance, I had to admit that when I was younger, I had exactly the opposite problem. (laughs) I never wanted to change my clothes, and especially not into anything that was less comfortable than sweatpants and a t-shirt. See, I needed the reminder that certain clothing is appropriate for certain situations. And when we come to our passage this morning, I think that is exactly the point that Paul is making. He argues that if we have put our faith in Christ and become part of the people of God, then Christ Himself has brought about a change in our spiritual clothing, teaching us to put off our old pattern of life and to put on the new pattern of life in righteousness and holiness. And Paul's opening words in verse 17 emphasize how important these verses are for us. You see how he starts. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. In other words, these verses aren't just a a side comment from Paul as he's working through this passage. Paul is testifying here with the authority of the Lord himself. And Paul does not soft pedal his encouragement. He speaks with urgency and clarity and says, if you are in Christ, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And so as we read this passage together this morning, we do so with the understanding right up front that thinking, acting, and living differently than the world around us is not an optional extra like ordering sprinkles on your ice cream cone. It is a holy summons for all who are in Christ from their God and their Savior. And Paul is going to explain this summons and why it is true as he describes what Christ has taught us to put off and what Christ has taught us to put on. Let's begin by looking at the clothing or the lifestyle that we are to put off. Paul says right there in verse 17 that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now you remember that the majority of those in the Ephesian church who would be reading this letter were Gentiles. They had lived the Gentile lifestyle before coming to know Christ. And of course, the whole church is living in a city that is predominantly Gentile. And so Paul is saying to the believers here, he's calling the church not to live like those around them and not to live like they used to live. Now in verses 18 and 19, Paul describes this Gentile lifestyle in more detail. He argues, if you follow his logic, that the root of the Gentile lifestyle begins with their hardness of heart, which does not receive God's word or God's will, but refuses God's perspective in favor of their own. This hardness of heart results in an ignorance that does not know God and does not understand either his word or his world. And the result of the hardness of heart and the ignorance of mind is an alienation from the life of God and a darkened understanding. 
And the result of that, Paul says, is that the Gentiles have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, to say that the Gentiles were callous, you know what it's like to have a callous on your hand. Paul was not saying that the the callousness was this sort of hardened, scheming, criminal mindset in every unbeliever. To be callous meant that they had lost sensitivity. They no longer felt shame or embarrassment. Their consciences no longer impeded their headlong pursuit of what they felt they wanted or need. And as a result of this callousness, this loss of sensitivity, this loss of conscience stopping them, they practice, or as the word literally says, they endeavor to do every kind of impurity. And these words, sensuality and purity, are words that were most frequently used to describe various unrestrained sexual sins, but they also included other unrestrained sin, a pursuit of money and wealth, arrogance, anger. But here we have a basic description of life outside of Christ. I think we know it because we all were born into it. We know it because we see it around us. But I want us to note a couple of important things in this description. First, note that Paul is very clear that the root of all disobedience to God starts with a hardness of heart. It starts with an unwillingness to submit to Him and our commitment to do what I want to do and what I think is best rather than obey God. And I think it's important for us to see this because I know that many who live a worldly life may not feel like they are hardened or angry towards God. In fact, many may say that we believe God exists. But the hardness that Paul is talking about is a decision. It's a decision to live as seems best to me rather than according to God's will. The root of all sin is the decision to seek happiness and fulfillment in the creation and in the pursuit of our desires rather than in the worship and obedience of our Creator. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans chapter 1? That God in His power and justice is evident to all mankind and yet they have exchanged the worship of this God for the worship of the creation and the pursuit of our desires here. And it's that hardness, that decision that is at the root of all sin. And that's why living in this manner deserves God's just wrath and punishment. Then also note note in Paul's description the crucial role our minds and our thinking play in how we live. Now the vast majority of people who decide not to obey God's word do not wake up one morning and say, today I'm going to be rebellious. Some do. Some do. But I think the majority of people start by believing wrong things about themselves and the world. They begin to believe, for instance, that our inner feelings and intuitions are the truest guide to who I am and what I need to be fulfilled and happy. Or they begin by believing that love means approving everyone's decisions and treating everyone the way they want to be treated regardless of what they are doing. Or they begin by believing that God's priority is for me to be happy. And so surely God would not put a roadblock in the way of what I know that I need to be happy. And there's so many other false ideas that we may start with. But these are unbiblical ideas that flourish apart from Scripture. But once our minds think what is false 
God's word no longer appears credible. And so we become futile in our thinking. You know what it means to be futile? You imagine a boat without a rudder. It's futile in trying to sail the oceans. Well, so our thinking, unmoored from the truth of God's word, is futile. It is darkened and ignorant. We are deceived in our desires and alienated from God, which leads to impurity, lust, and sin. This is where we all start in life. We are all born in sin on the world's team. But Paul is eager to remind every believer that if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we must no longer live this life. We must no longer walk in this former or this Gentile manner of life, for we have been given a new change of spiritual clothing. And that's what we want to look at now. Look at verse 20 as Paul turns to describe the radical change that has happened when we come to Christ. He says, we must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, because that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him. Learning, hearing, teaching, these are school words, aren't they? You know, we've just come off graduation season, and we all know what happens in a graduation. Students and families gather... They come together, they listen to a speech. Sometimes it's inspiring, sometimes it's terrible. And then students walk across the stage and they receive a diploma. And that diploma is affirming this student has been taught certain things. They've completed a course of study, this school's training. Well, here in verses 20 through 24, I think we have a beautiful description of what every believer learns in the school of Christ. And in this school, Christ Himself is the curriculum. Paul says that if you have put your faith in Jesus, you have learned Christ. Now this is, a, this is a beautiful phrase, and I want you to notice it specifically because it does not say you have learned about Jesus. It doesn't say you've learned things about Him. It says you have learned Christ. What does it mean to learn a person? Well, to learn a person is to know them personally. It's to be shaped by them is to trust them so fully as the expert and guide worth copying that we draw near to them, we spend time with them, we imitate them. You know, in college, there's a student who so loved a particular history professor that they would take every class that professor taught, no matter what the subject matter was. They spent time with that professor outside of class. They even helped that professor build their new home. And soon everyone called him Little Dr. Stewart. He wasn't just learning history, he was adopting the views and the lifestyle of the professor. He was learning Dr. Stewart. But that's, in a similar way, a picture of the Christian in the school of Christ. The Christian has so drawn near to Christ and so entrusted himself to Christ, has so been shaped by Christ and fully indwelt by Christ through his spirit, that Paul can say, we haven't just learned about Christ, we have learned Christ. But Christ in this school is also the teacher. I think the ESV actually makes an unfortunate decision when it says you have learned Christ assuming you have heard about him. The word about is not in the Greek. The text clearly says you have learned Christ assuming you have heard him. Again, the believer is not just hearing about Christ. Yes, we do hear about Christ, but But every Christian is not someone who's just heard about Jesus. Every believer has heard the voice of Jesus himself. 
through his word in our lives, calling us to himself, saving us, and telling us how to live as his sons and daughters. Christ is the curriculum. Christ is the teacher. But Christ, in Paul's words, is actually the school building itself. You see what he says? You have heard about him and were taught in him. This education happens when we are in Christ. Because apart from Christ, we can know nothing other than some facts about a man who lived in Judea 2,000 years ago. But in relationship with Christ, united to Christ, by His very Spirit living in us, we can hear Him, we can be changed by Him, we can become like Him. And so here in the school of Christ, where Christ is the curriculum, the teacher, and the school itself, Paul says we've learned three things. We've been taught three things. You see them in verses 22 to 24. He says, in Christ we have been taught to put off the former way of life. In other words, the desires that we followed when we walked as the Gentiles did were deceitful desires. They never delivered what they promised in the long run because they were not true. We thought they were what we wanted, but they were deceiving. They were desires coming from our hearts wanting to live our way rather than God's. And so they led to a corrupt life that deserves God's punishment. But when we come to Christ by faith, Christ teaches us to put off this manner of life. Then in verse 23, Paul says that we've also been taught to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Paul uses two words here to refer to our inmost being spirit and mind. Both of these words refer to our our core convictions, our thoughts, our motivations, our desires. It's at that level, at, at this core level, that we are to be renewed, that we are taught to be renewed in the school of Christ. And of course, we're not renewed in this school because we study really well for the exams. We're not renewed because we're convinced to adopt a new philosophy of life. We are renewed because Christ has given us the very Spirit of God Himself to live in us, to change us, to dwell in our inner being, and to guide us in the truth. We've been taught to put off the former way of life. We've been taught to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And then Paul says, thirdly in verse 24, that we are taught not just to take off a former way of life, but to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. When you hear language like this, to be created in the likeness of God, maybe you think of Paul's other words in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, when we come to Christ, we become a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And this life is created after the likeness of God. What a, what a stunning phrase. That you and I, if we have come to Jesus should see in our lives a reflection of the likeness of God. Not not of His divine majesty, but of the likeness of His character, of His righteousness and holiness that's been recreated in us. Of course, if you're reading this passage and you hear words like being created in the likeness of God, your mind should immediately spin back to Genesis chapter 1. There in Genesis chapter 1, when God first creates mankind, what does he say? I'm going to create mankind in my image, in the likeness of God. He created him. God's decision was to create human beings. 
He created mankind to know Him, to represent Him on earth, to reflect and declare God's character to His creation. Now in the fall, in our, in our sin, our ability to reflect God's character faithfully was, was broken, it was shattered. But in Christ, God recreates that image and likeness, once again enabling us to represent God and to live after His likeness and righteousness and holiness. And so if we're going to sum up what Paul says, here's Paul's theological argument for why we ought to walk worthy of God's calling by living holy lives. Our salvation, which comes through faith by God's grace alone, is not only about forgiveness, it is also about recreation. When we put our faith in Christ, God, by the power of His Spirit at work in our inner being, changes our desires and our thinking, creates us anew and gives us this new self. And in repentance and conversion, we have put off the old man and his thinking and his lifestyle and have put on a new man, created in the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. If you have trusted Christ, that's who you are now. If that is who we are now, then we ought to live in holiness because anything else is living inconsistently with who we are in Him. It is a betrayal of how God has made us and with what He has taught us in Christ. That's the theological foundation. But as I read Paul's words, as we come toward the end, I, there are two things that stand out to me. The first thing that stands out to me is that these words are such an encouragement. When I consider my life and how easily again and again and again I see remaining sin popping up in my heart and my life, I can be discouraged. Sometimes our, as we think about the brokenness of sin and depravity, sometimes we can even slip into thinking that maybe it's, maybe it's impossible for us to, to live in holiness at all. But this passage encourages us that righteousness and holiness are possible because God has made us new creations in Christ. See, Paul does not say, come on guys, put off the old man and put on the new man. It's not an imperative. He uses verbs of simple fact. You were taught in Christ to put off your old self and put on your new self. You have been recreated and made new And it's because that has happened in Christ as a matter of fact that we are now no longer to walk in sin. In fact, if you think back to the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament looked forward to this day when God would work in His people's hearts to enable them to walk in righteousness and holiness in a way that they could not before. Maybe you think of Ezekiel chapter 36, for instance where Ezekiel passed on these words from God, I am about to act and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That was fulfilled in Christ. That's what God has done in us through Christ. At our conversion, we go from belonging to this world with hardened hearts and darkened minds, living for ourselves and unable to please God, to belonging to Christ with minds taught in the truth and living for Him so that we are now able day by day to resist sin and practice righteousness. Of course, we won't do that perfectly. In fact, we know from Scripture and from personal experience that we won't do this perfectly. 
Every day is a spiritual battle waged in the field of our hearts and minds until we stand in Christ's presence and we are finally perfected in Him. But what this passage is reminding us is an old theological truth that in sin we are unable to please God. But when we are renewed in Christ, we are able to live in righteousness and holiness. Not perfectly in this life, of course, but we are able. In fact, I think Paul expresses this beautifully in verse 23. When he talks about being renewed in the spirit of our minds, he uses here an ongoing present tense verb. In other words, we've been taught to continue to be renewed in, our, in the spirit of our minds. And the implication is that day after day, we are renewed in our inner being by the Spirit of God in Christ to resist the old learned habits of our sinful nature and to live out the righteousness and holiness that God has recreated us to practice. And though this lifelong battle will be filled with both victories and setbacks, what we are being reminded of here is that there is no sin that God's power and sanctification does not touch. There is no area of our life in which we are incapable of walking worthy of God's calling in righteousness and holiness. So that when temptation comes in Christ, we can say, sorry sin, Christ himself has taught me to put you off and to put on a new set of clothes that is created by God himself in his likeness. And that is a tremendous encouragement to us as we seek to live in holiness day by day. These words, these words are also a challenge to us. They're a challenge to us particularly if we see little or no desire for holiness at all or little hatred of sin at all in our lives. This past week I read a beautiful exhortation from a sister in Christ. Hadiyah Mir Hamadi grew up as a Muslim woman, but she left Islam after she was told that she'd burn in hell for removing her head covering. Uh, She lived for years in pain, in confusion, uncertain as to the meaning of life, until she heard the gospel online from a celebrity pastor and she trusted her life to Christ. She was glued to this pastor's messages while she was also reading her Bible and in Bible study. But after several years, she realized that something was missing in the sermons that she was listening to. She said, this celebrity pastor talked of Jesus and that was good. But he never talked about repentance or turning from sin. He never warned us that many would be deceived by false teaching and our hearts might be being pulled away from the gospel even now. And so Hedea concluded, she said, repenting and turning from sin, not conforming to the pattern of this world and facing persecution for our beliefs is a constant theme throughout the Bible. And without these truths to guide our behavior, a church body ends up being nothing more than a self-help group or a social club rather than a place for discipleship. So brothers and sisters, we must hear Paul's call to no longer live like the world lives, but to live in righteousness and holiness. In fact, I think Paul takes it even a step further here. I think Paul in these verses indicates that our desire for holiness is even a test of whether we may have genuine faith in Christ or not. You see what he says there in verse 20 and 21? But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, 
In other words, if there is no desire for holiness, no desire to put off sin, no desire to resist the ways of the world, we may need to ask whether we have genuinely come to Christ or not. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, made the same point in one of his well-known essays entitled A Treatise on Religious Affections. He began that essay by saying, There is no question whatsoever that is of greater importance to mankind and what concerns every individual person to be well resolved in than this. What are the distinguishing qualifications of those that are in favor with God and entitled to his eternal rewards? Now that language is 300 years old. Maybe we could update it. If we simplify it, Edward's question is this. There is no question that is more important for every one of us this morning to answer than this. What are the marks of those who have genuinely come to faith in Christ? Of course, the way of salvation is to put our faith in Jesus. But Jesus has said, not all those who call Lord, Lord, will meet me in paradise. Because our hearts can be deceitful. So what are the marks that demonstrate the genuineness of our faith in Christ? Edward said there's one key answer. The main mark of a heart and life that is genuine in its faith in Christ is the heart that has a desire for God and holiness and a hatred of sin. He put it this way. Many of you have probably owned pets. If you've ever been a small pet owner, hamster, gecko, My family is well experienced in small pet owning. And if you've been uh, in this field of business, you know that you often come to times when you have to look at that small pet and say, is it alive or is it not alive? (laughs) And there's one crucial test. You poke it. (laughs) And if it moves, it's alive. If it doesn't move, it's probably dead. And Edwards says it's the same thing that shows us the genuine mark of our own faith. He put it this way. He says, when something is alive, it moves. So the chief sign of saving grace of a soul that is alive in Christ is movement towards holiness. If there is no movement towards holiness, then we need to question whether there is any spiritual life in our hearts. Again, of course the believer will still sin. What should worry us at these marks is not the presence of remaining sin, but the lack of hatred of sin, the lack of desire to repent, the casual willingness to justify what we want, the casual willingness to live like the world without being pricked by our conscience, instead of a deep-hearted movement towards God and His holiness. Without that movement toward God and holiness, without that desire, no matter what we've prayed or what words we've said, we must ask whether we have learned Christ or not. Now, brother and sister, if you lack this desire, there is a warning here for you this morning. But if that is where you are this morning, the solution is clear. Confess this to God Tell him your sin. Tell him your lack of desire for him and for righteousness. Repent and ask him to forgive your sin. Ask him for a new heart in Christ, for a new set of spiritual clothes, for the sake of Jesus who died on the cross and took the penalty that we deserved and rose again for our redemption. God delights to answer that prayer. 
For whoever genuinely calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you have trusted Christ, if this is your desire, be encouraged by what God has done in you. He has taught us to put off the old man and put on the new which has been recreated by His Spirit. So let us no longer walk like the world, but walk worthy of our calling, being renewed day by day in the spirit of our minds by God's Word and by God's Spirit to live in righteousness and holiness as we have been taught in Christ to the glory of His name. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this Word, this Word that speaks directly to our hearts. Father, thank You for Christ who has died in our place and risen again. Thank You that when we put our faith in Him, He recreates us and gives us this new man this new set of spiritual clothing. Oh, Father, give us a greater hatred of sin. Give us a greater awareness of our sin. Give us a growing desire for God and for holiness that we might look ahead to our life with you and might glorify your name. Would you work this in us individually and would you work this in your church? We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.